Verge podcast with Real Lit. Yeah, we've got Trevor Martin on the show today. For listeners not familiar with Trevor, who is he? I am incredibly excited to welcome Trevor to the show today. So if you know anything about the the field of gene editing or CRISPR, chances are you've heard of Trevor Martin. He is the co-founder and CEO of gene editing company Mammoth Biosciences, uh, which he founded at the ripe old age of 28. Uh, Jennifer Doudna is one of the co-founders of Mammoth, and obviously she is one of CRISPR's original inventors. She won the Nobel Prize for it in 2020. Uh, and so for people who aren't familiar with Mammoth, they are pursuing uh, CRISPR-based diagnostics as well as therapeutics, which I think is, uh, which is pretty unique in the space. So I'm incredibly excited to welcome Trevor to the show. CRISPR is thought of, I think, by most people uh, as a therapeutic tool, but obviously it's it's got very broad applications. Where does Mammoth fit into the whole CRISPR landscape? Yeah, so I'm really excited to talk to Trevor about this. So j- just to set the stage for the discussion, right, most folks have probably heard of CRISPR. There's probably very few that know what it actually stands for. Uh, it stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. So that's a mouthful. So people obviously just call it CRISPR for short. Um, but it is it is widely recognized at this point for its potential to treat diseases. It's ranging from everything from cancer to inherited genetic disorders. Uh, and it works just at a high level by sort of slicing and dicing away the uh, code that you want to take out in human DNA. And then you can replace that code with uh, new edited functional code. Uh, so what Trevor and his team at Mammoth are doing is exploring how that technology can use to diagnose disease through their diagnostics platform, uh, but then also for ways to treat that disease through developing novel therapeutic applications. Uh, and so I think it's a, a pretty unique vantage point from from where Mammoth sits in the overall ecosystem. And I'm excited to dive into some of some of what they're doing, both on the diagnostic side also on the therapeutic side, um, and they've announced some some big partnerships recently, so uh, I'm excited to explore those as well. I think there's a tendency in this industry to focus on high-value applications, even if it takes a longer time to get there. Does it make sense to see what Mammoth is doing on the diagnostic side? I, absolutely. I mean, I think there's there's tons of potential here, both on the diagnostic side, and so uh, if I'm not mistaken, Mammoth's, Mammoth's first diagnostic application was uh, during the pandemic for, for COVID. So they had emergency use authorization for a CRISPR-based diagnostic tool for COVID. And so, you know, my understanding is that is it looks very similar to the sensitivity and specificity of a PCR-based test, but is easier to run. And so it's not exactly uh, an at-home test, but it has much better sensitivity and specificity than an antigen-based test. So it sort of falls somewhere in between is, is how I think about it. But I, I want to ask Trevor, Trevor that. So I think there's a ton of applications in the, the diagnostic world. And that's just for infectious disease, right? I mean, I think this technology is broadly applicable in terms of diagnosing a whole wide variety of diseases, not just infectious disease. 
And what are you hoping to hear from Trevor today? Yeah, so I'm hoping to hear a little bit about their their vision for the future for, for Mammoth. I think it is pretty unique for them to do diagnostics as well as therapeutics. So how did how do they think about the strategic direction of the company? Are they looking to establish more more partnerships for the therapeutic development? Are they doing stuff in house and developing their own therapeutics pipeline? Um, you know, how do they see CRISPR fitting into the the broader ecosystem? You know, a lot of uh, a lot of you know gene editing. There are a lot of gene editing tools out there. There's a lot of companies tackling this this space. Um, so, just curious, sort of getting his thirty thousand foot view on the the broader ecosystem as well. And then finally. You know, I would certainly classify Mammoth as as this new class of tech bio company. So I, I, I'd love to understand if Trevor agrees with that. And if so, like, wh- what does that mean for him in terms of company culture and how they think about building and scaling a, a company like Mammoth? Well, if you're all set. Let's do it, Danny. Trevor, thanks for joining us today. I am really excited to have you with us on the on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me and excited to be here. So today we are going to talk about your company, Mammoth Biosciences, CRISPR, its utility as a diagnostic tool, your recent partnerships with pharma and biotech companies to develop in vivo gene editing therapies, which as regular listeners uh, of this show know has been a recent theme on this podcast. Uh, I'm sure at this point, most folks have heard of CRISPR. Uh, and today I want to focus on what makes it such a powerful tool, not just for research, but diagnostics and therapeutic applications. But before we dive into all of that, Trevor, let's spend a little time on the early days of Mammoth. Can you walk us through the early days and, and the origin story of, of Mammoth Biosciences? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, Mammoth was founded about four and a half, almost five years ago now, with this very ambitious vision of what's really possible with CRISPR and this idea of really delivering on what we see as the true promise of CRISPR. And I think, uh, especially, Mammoth was founded, there's a lot of focus on the kind of legacy original systems that uh, are maybe most famous in the CRISPR space, things like Cas9 or Cas12. And what was interesting is that people weren't really looking outside of that. Um, Whereas CRISPR actually is this very diverse uh, technology that's found in many different uh, organisms in nature across uh, these organisms that have needed to develop this adaptive immunity um, that CRISPR was originally evolved for. So we had this idea and this vision that by leveraging these non-traditional CRISPR systems beyond Cas9 and beyond Cas12, it wouldn't just be academically interesting, but it would actually enable new functionalities and new products that could be built that leverage their unique properties and overcame some of the challenges of things that we saw with the first generation CRISPR systems. And in particular uh, at Mammoth, um, since the beginning, we've been focused on uh, human therapeutics and human diagnostics. There's you know tons of applications outside of that. There's agriculture, there's biomanufacturing, there's um, all sorts of really exciting use cases. But internally where we think we can have a huge patient impact uh, is human therapeutics and human diagnostics. And within human therapeutics, as you mentioned at the beginning, really focused on unlocking permanent cures for genetic disease that can transform patients' lives. And in particular, that's gonna require going in vivo. And that's one of the kind of hardest things to do. And that's where we think, for example, in pioneering these things that we call ultra compact CRISPR systems, and we can get into what that is, uh, that we uniquely enable that. Um, And then on the diagnostic side, we've used CRISPR to invent the first new method of molecular detection and well, 
many, many years. And what's exciting there is that we can now start to push closer and closer to the patient in this more accessible and decentralized fashion, uh, the gold standard of detection, things like you know, lab-based PCR, that really high sensitivity and specificity, but pushing it in a more decentralized and more accessible manner. So those are some of the things that from the very beginning of the company, we really think that unlocking these novel technologies, these novel systems are really going to enable us to actually deliver it to patients. And Trevor, there, there's a lot there to unpack and dive into uh, throughout the course of this show. Um, I, I did want to ask, though, so Jennifer Doudna is one of the co-founders of the company. And, and just quickly, for those who aren't familiar with her work, right, she received the Nobel Prize in, in 2020 in chemistry, along with Emmanuel Charpentier for the development of a method of, of genome editing, which is CRISPR. Um, how did you hook up with, with Jennifer? Yeah, so I'm really, really fortunate to work uh, with an amazing co-founding team. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, one of the co-founders of Mammoth is Jennifer Doudna, who uh, won the Nobel Prize for her pioneering work in CRISPR. Um, the other co-founders are, of course, uh, myself, and then the two uh, star graduate students from Jennifer's lab, uh, Janice Chen and Lucas Harrington, who, uh, along with Jennifer, are actually the inventors of many of the technologies we uh, work with at Mammoth and develop. Um, and my background is actually, I came from uh, Stanford, where I was doing my PhD in biology, um, coming from more of a computational biology background. And uh, I actually just uh, kind of read the papers that they were publishing and got really, really excited about the potential of the CRISPR technologies that they were building. Um, so uh, cold emailed uh, <laughs> Jennifer originally um, and you know, was really excited uh, to have her respond and introduce me to Janice and Lucas. And we really hit it off in terms of sharing this vision of building a generational biotech company and that this was a unique opportunity where there is the technology, the founding team, um, and the opportunity to have this impact on patients' lives over many, many years. Um, so definitely, I think a bit of a non-traditional background for me, um, since I'm not one of the inventors of the technology. Um, and I think that shows that it's all about sharing that vision and uh, kind of having that alignment around where the company uh, can head. And it doesn't have to be your PhD thesis necessarily. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love learning about this sort of origin stories and the founding story of, of companies because it's, it's never sort of a straight line. So th thank you for sharing. I think that's really interesting. I do. I want to talk about the, the your, your vision for the future in one second, but uh, I just want to share a funny story. I, I, I'm not sure if you remember this, but I certainly remember you and I were actually connected back in 2018 as part of a J Labs event. And oh, cool. long story short, we we never actually ended up meeting, um, which unfortunately for me at this point, oh, yeah. falls into our anti-portfolio at Bioverge. So big, huh. big missed opportunity, I think, from, from my perspective. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's okay. You know, it's just the way these things go sometimes. But um, you guys have just, you guys have, you know, obviously done incredible things over the years. So before we dive specifically into some of your technologies, um, I do want to just talk a little bit about um, your vision for the future. You mentioned some of this, but I, it's, describe to our listeners what your ultimate vision is for, for Mammoth and, and if that vision has evolved from day one or is it sort of roughly the same since you founded the company? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, going back to some of what we were talking about before, the vision really is to deliver on the promise of CRISPR, right? And to do that by innovating around CRISPR systems and technologies. And on the therapeutic side, permanent cures in vivo, especially going extra hepatic. And um, one of the areas that we've pioneered at Mammoth beyond ultra compact systems is this space that we call CRISPR plus. 
Um, and this includes things like base editing or gene writing or epigenetic editing um, and anything beyond double strand breaks basically. And we think that these methods are also gonna have to go in vivo um, to really have their maximum impact. And that's gonna require um, having ultra compact systems so we can actually deliver them where they need to go. Um, so that's a kind of broad area that we think is really where the puck is headed in terms of having maximum impact on patients' lives. Um, and on the diagnostic side, again, really about kind of decentralizing the ultimate in high quality, high sensitivity, high specificity uh, molecular testing, whether that's for oncology or infectious disease or genetic medicine. Um, it's this brand new method of molecular detection that we're leveraging. So in terms of kind of the vision of the company, of course, from day one, you can't map out all the details, right? Uh, you're always gonna have you know, stuff that comes along, new things that are exciting, things you discover that maybe you didn't realize. Um, but what has stayed very, very consistent is that ambition to be across both curing and detecting disease, and that ambition to drive it forward with novel technologies, in addition to you know, the amazing technologies invented by our co-founders that we licensed out of universities, um, and to have you know, that impact ourselves and to build a generational company, right? Not to just be a technology licensing shop or, you know, to just sit at the fringe of it, but really to um, fully invest in having that impact on patients' lives, both ourselves and with leading partners. I think it's an incredible vision. And, and, and Trevor, so let, let's dive into some of the details. So typically when people talk about CRISPR, it's often in conjunction with a protein called Cas9, However, CRISPR, as you mentioned, really actually comes in a variety of different flavors. So before we dive into the different permutations, let's, I, I just want to make sure our listeners sort of are on a level playing field. Can you talk a little bit about CRISPR in general and why it's such a powerful gene editing tool? And then we can talk a little bit about Cas9 and other permutations of, of that protein. Yeah, so um, CRISPR has a lot of really great properties. And as you mentioned, there's many different flavors, probably the most famous being Cas9. Um, and I think what fundamentally one of the things that has really caused an explosion in the field of CRISPR um, is the programmability and accessibility of the technology. So um, it's not the first way ever to do gene editing, right? There's, you know, zinc fingers and uh, other technologies that have come before it. Um, but it's definitely just orders of magnitude um, more programmable and I think that has caused an explosion of development of the space and people using it and you know, new methods being developed on top of it. And it becomes this very virtuous cycle um, of developing the technology and making it better and better. Um, where I think uh, now I think of CRISPR really fundamentally as kind of this almost search engine for biology. And you can program it with this, uh, this uh, piece of uh, technology called the guide RNA and that guide RNA kind of directs it to a certain sequence, whether that's DNA or RNA, and tells it to only go to that specific, say, location in the genome that you want to edit and not go anywhere else uh, in the genome or uh, you know, not bind to any other locations. And that's a very, very uh, powerful concept because we can very easily uh, design, manufacture, and program those guide RNAs. And that allows us to very rapidly iterate and uh, kind of direct this CRISPR technology in a very programmatic and reproducible way um, to different therapies, different diagnostics, different agricultural edits that you wanna do. Um, and you don't even have to use the kind of built-in scissors on the CRISPR protein. That's how some of the first editing uh, was done is through double strand breaks where 
you're leveraging these built-in scissors that come with this programmable CRISPR protein um, to cut the DNA at the location of that where that guide RNA told it to go. And then through the repair of that cut, there's various ways um, that you can uh, have the editing done. Um, and now people, uh, including Mammoth, are moving beyond that and doing things like uh, base editing, where you fuse on a deaminase so that you can actually change a single base pair um, or epigenetic editing or other areas where you're now using the CRISPR system as this uh, kind of vehicle for delivering that functionality and leveraging that search capability of the protein that I think lies at the core of what makes it special. And so focusing on, on Cas9 specifically, why, why is that not an all-in-one solution? Are, are there certain limitations of, of, of Cas9 that you need to engineer around? Yeah, so I think um, definitely we're lucky that Cas9 is a great system and there's really uh, great pioneering work being done with it, including in the uh, clinic now. Um, I think in general, if we just look at the history of CRISPR though, that's you know the first system to be discovered and developed, right? There's no reason to expect out of all the flavors of CRISPR that that would necessarily be the best or you know the only one that ends up being effective. So um, in general, I think Cas9 is a great technology and a great system, um, but it does have real limitations, whether that's uh, kind of bringing it in vivo because of its size, or that's uh, trying to get the highest fidelity possible, or that's uh, the targeting and can you reach all the locations in the genome? Um, there's many different things you might wanna look at, um, but I think it just goes back to that philosophy of how do you have the broadest portfolio of kind of multiple CRISPR systems so that you can choose the right technology for the right disease? Um, whether that's, you know, going in vivo with an ultra compact system, or that's even, you know, going beyond double strand breaks and using base editing or gene writing. At Mammoth, we don't have this philosophy that a lot of companies have that there has to be like one ring to rule them all. It's either like all Cas9 or all not Cas9 or all double strand breaks or all not double strand breaks. I think we want to be driven by the science at the end of the day, right? And you want to be able to choose the right technology for the disease that's going to have the maximum impact. So maybe for some disease, um, you know, it is Cas9 that's the right technology, especially let's say if you're going ex vivo um, or for another disease, like you really need to use an ultra compact system because you're going in vivo and you're trying to develop a permanent cure. And for some disease, you're using a double strand break because a knockout is the right way to approach it. Or for another thing, you're using base editing. And I think it's about having access to all these different technologies so you can be driven by the disease biology and not driven by what you kind of happened to license out of a university 10 years ago. Yeah, so Trevor, I mean, there, there are a lot of really important points there to, to sort of dive into, but I, I want to pick up on the thread of, of sort of the the, the, the platform, because a lot of what you've done at Mammoth, right, is is sort of building this platform for discovering new CAS enzymes, if I understand it correctly. So could, could you talk a little bit about maybe some of the properties you look for in other CAS enzymes? You know, what, what have you what have you found today? What, what are you what are you developing in terms of this product suite of other types of CAS enzymes that could be more precise tools? Yeah. So the foundation of the company and the way we've been able to build up um, what's become the broadest and most diverse portfolio of CRISPR systems and technologies in the industry is through um, our pioneering work in uh, mining, discovering, developing, and engineering uh, CRISPR technologies. And the kind of grist for that mill is what we call metagenomic data. And this data can come from all sorts of environments, like, you know, it could be a hot spring, it could be a volcano, it could be you know, a desert, there's all sorts of uh, places. And what you do is you sequence kind of all the microbes in that environment. And because uh, 
you know, CRISPR has evolved to be this adaptive immunity uh, functionality, you'll uh, have tons of potential CRISPR systems um, in these sequencing databases. And at Mammoth, we uh, have been able to build up extremely comprehensive industry-leading database, and that's including both public data, and we also um, strike deals privately to get exclusive access to data um, for things that we think will be particularly enriched based on our very extensive now experience mining uh, through <clears throat> these databases. And that's just step one, though. Then you have to apply uh, machine learning and uh, bioinformatics to pull out uh, the putative uh, CRISPR technologies and systems that are in these databases. And we really uh, kind of pioneered those techniques. And one of the things that separates Mammoth is that we're not just looking for things that look like Cas9 or Cas12. That's where a lot of the industry is focused, is kind of lookalike, you know, very similar functionality systems. We really are pushing the envelope of what's possible. And that requires deep understanding of, you know, CRISPR uh, functionality and, you know, what actually can create a functional CRISPR system. And even with the best bioinformatics, though, and the best machine learning pipelines, it's still a needle in the haystack. So we actually have a whole, whole floor of our building that has a bunch of high-throughput robotics systems that actually then, in the wet lab environment, screen these um, for uh, their potential, um, whether that's as an editing uh, modality or a diagnostic modality or, you know, where it's like ultra-small property, all sorts of things that we look for. Um, and that uh, is really required um, in order to pull out the systems that are actually going to be functional at the end of the day. And even with the best bioinformatics, the best screening, the best database, um, we still have to do an immense amount of engineering on top of that. And then that's what really turns these into uh, these leading kind of novel CRISPR technologies. Uh, the ones that we're public about include things like Cas14 and Casv. Um, but it's really this entire kind of comprehensive pipeline that we've pioneered at Mammoth that's required to go from metagenomic sequencing data all the way through to um, really great, let's say, editing CRISPR system. And Trevor, in terms of the technology, I mean, it's, it's probably fair to say that most people are focused on the therapeutic potential of CRISPR. However, your initial focus at Mammoth was on the diagnostic applications of CRISPR. So what, what, what do you see as the potential for CRISPR as a diagnostic tool and, and, and what advantages might it have over other types of tests? So we've always been focused on detecting and curing disease since the beginning. Obviously, you know, with the pandemic, I think we obviously have uh, done a ton of pioneering work that's been public around the diagnostic side of the business. But we've been uh, really cranking away and have been able to generate amazing data on the therapeutic side since uh, the early days of the company as well. Um, I think that's one of the things that makes Mammoth unique is that we take this broad view of CRISPR, right? Because I think whether it's therapeutics or diagnostics or agriculture, you know, people really do segment into these areas and there can be uh, advantages to that. But what makes Mammoth special is that we have um, this incredibly diverse and broad uh, portfolio of CRISPR systems and technologies that allows us to uh, think in this uh, kind of more uh, ambitious way about what really is the promise of CRISPR. So uh, in terms of the diagnostic uh, kind of capabilities of a lot of these novel CRISPR systems that we work with, I think what's really exciting there is that for the first time we're able to have have to not make this choice that we've all seen during the pandemic of, oh, do we want something that's as accurate as possible? Okay, that's like in the lab. That means we're gonna have to wait a uh, longer time. It's like just a totally different process. Or do we need a result 
um, quickly at our doctor's office, even at home, uh, antigen type tests, things like that. But we're going to sacrifice on the quality, right? And it's not going to be as sensitive. It's not going to be as specific. And I think what's exciting is that CRISPR-based diagnostics allow us to kind of have our cake and eat it too in terms of ultra high sensitivity and specificity, but in these more decentralized formats because this is a simple chemistry that's isothermal. And I think that is really kind of a sea change in what's popular, uh, what's possible in molecular testing. Um, they'll have applications across a bunch of different areas. The obvious one, of course, is infectious disease. Um, during the pandemic, uh, we've published uh, multiple papers showing how uh, CRISPR-based diagnostics can be effective for detecting things like COVID-19. Um, and these are really great proof of concepts um, for the power of the technology. We even were able to achieve an emergency use authorization, uh, actually the world's first high-throughput CRISPR-based emergency use authorization for detection of COVID-19. And that really proves that CRISPR is a molecular diagnostics technique that can go head-to-head -head with these technologies that have been in the market for decades, right, that are more complex. And I think that looking forward, there's lots of you know, exciting applications, but anywhere where you're trying to detect DNA or RNA, whether that's um, you know, genetic medicine, whether that's oncology, whether that's infectious disease, I think there's really exciting applications of CRISPR diagnostics across them. Yeah, I think that's incredibly exciting. And, and let's, I, just, I just want to spend another minute on that because I'm just really fascinated by this. So I, I believe that the, the, the COVID diagnostic test was, was, if not the first, one of the first that you, you've developed um, and as you said, you got the emergency youth authorization for that. Um, I'm, I'm really, really interested how, and you mentioned this, how it sort of compares to the, the, the tests that we're more familiar with, right? The antigen-based tests and the PCR tests. Um, and, you know, there, there are sort of pros and cons with each approach. So it's, it sounds like, if I'm understanding you correctly, you have the, the sensitivity and specificity of something like a PCR test, but it's more accessible um, and can be, I mean, it's not an at, at home test specifically, but it's an easier to use, maybe a quicker turnaround time than, an, a, than a, a traditional lab-based test. Um, and so maybe just dive into a little bit of the sensitivity specificity compared to antigen-based tests and, and the PCR-based test that we're all sort of more familiar with. Yeah, no, exactly. So I think um, kind of the, the crux of it is that CRISPR is incredibly specific and leveraging this uh, really unique property that we pioneered um, that enables CRISPR-based diagnostics, which is kind of this molecular shredder functionality, you're able to actually create both a readout and an amplification uh, using the CRISPR technology. So at the highest level, the way it works is that you program the CRISPR protein with a guide RNA, the same as you do for you know, uh, editing and therapeutics, but now you're programming the guide RNA to be specific to a sequence you're trying to detect rather than a sequence in the genome that you're trying to edit. Um, so that could be a sequence that's you know, specific to COVID-19 and not found in flu or the human genome. And this is, to be clear, all taking place ex vivo. So it's like in a you know, test tube that someone has spit in or something like that. Um, and then if that uh, CRISPR protein that's now been programmed with this guide RNA that's specific to the sequence you want to detect, if and only if it finds its target, so it successfully finds, let's say, you know, COVID-19 sequence, then it doesn't just cut the sequence that it's bound to, like a kind of classical editing CRISPR system. It actually turns on this kind of molecular shredder functionality and it cleaves all the single-stranded DNA or RNA, depending on the protein, that it can get its hands on. 
And that can be leveraged in a lot of different ways. The simplest is some sort of reporter molecule where it's like a quenched fluorophore. And if it's cut, it releases some sort of color. Um, and that can be both a readout. So let's say, you know, color metric. Um, and that's an amplification. It's going from binding a single uh, example of the sequence you're trying to detect to cutting, you know, many other sequences um, as a result of that. Um, and that's kind of the fundamental principle of CRISPR-based diagnostics. So cool. So cool. Okay. So um, let's let's shift gears a little bit then uh, and, and talk about what you're doing in the realm of, of therapeutics, some of the partnerships uh, that you have announced recently. Um, I'm always curious about partnerships, one of the hazards of spending so much of my career doing business development. Um, but there's, you know, I mean, you, you've already said sort of your application has lots of broad applicability, right? That that's spanning things like agriculture, environmental monitoring, food safety, bio threats. So I guess at a high level, I'd love to understand how you think about partnering at a strategic level, right? What, what do you think about in terms of what makes for a compelling partnership as you think across these different you know, verticals and different applications for your technology? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think the first part is vision alignment, right? In terms of, you know, where is this technology going to have an impact and um, kind of what are the maybe even additional technologies that could be brought to maximize that impact? Um, when you're looking at partnerships, it's always really great if there's uh, synergistic things like delivery methods or other technologies that can be brought to bear um, by either or both parties uh, into the collaboration. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, that vision alignment, a big part of it, you know, is also where are you directing it, right? And is the partner bringing in uh, domain-specific expertise in, you know, a disease area that would be very difficult or time-consuming for you to build up? And, you know, they've really lived in that space and have a ton of expertise they can bring to bear to help accelerate um, the time uh, that it'll take to bring this therapy to the patients that need it the most. Um, I think... Uh, beyond that, you have to really look for cultural fit between the teams. Um, ideally, this is a you know partnership that hopefully will last a very long time. And it takes a long time to bring a bring a drug to patients, right? And it's like a journey with its ups and its downs and its sideways. And um, that means that you have to have a really really great working relationship uh, between the partners. Um, so very similar to you know looking at an investor, right? You're looking at do you share the same vision? Um, do you have the same ideas around, you know, where this can go and are you going to enjoy working together? Right. Um, so those are, those are some of the high level things. Yeah, no, all, all critical aspects. So, so let's, then let's dive in and, and see how this is played out. Right. So you have announced uh, two therapeutic focused partnerships. One was in January of this year where you announced a partnership with uh, the pharma company Bayer to help strengthen their gene and cell therapy platform uh, with a specific focus on liver diseases. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that partnership and, and the benefits of partnering with a company like Bayer? Yeah, um, so we have, as you mentioned, uh, well, two public partnerships on the therapeutic side, um, one with Bayer and one with Vertex. I think uh, both are incredibly exciting and great foundational deals for the company, uh, A, for the reasons I mentioned before around cultural alignment, around vision alignment, um, and uh, in terms of uh, the Bayer partnership, what we can say there is that uh, it's uh, in vivo uh, focused, uh, starting with the liver. Um, and uh, Bayer's done a lot of really uh, 
foundational work building out like a cell and gene therapy franchise, acquiring Ask Bio, acquiring other companies. And I think that is really exciting to help uh, build that foundation um, for that franchise. Um, and on the Vertex side, uh, also in vivo focused um, for some specific undisclosed targets. And um, there, I mean, Vertex has immense experience in the CRISPR space, um, has done deals with you know, the CRISPR therapeutics, for example, uh, really understands the technology um, and very exciting to work with them to you know, tackle, tackle in vivo applications. And, and for Bayer specifically, since you have publicly announced that you're focusing on uh, liver diseases, I'm, just, I'm curious, how, how did you decide to focus on liver as the initial you know, target disease and, and, and target area of interest? Was that, was that driven from, from Bayer? Was that a combined decision? I'm, I'm always sort of curious how, how you narrow down on a specific indication or focus. So it starts um, with uh, liver focus. And I think in general, it's always a you know, collaborative decision right where you want to start a partnership and you know where you want it to go i think um in general just speaking broadly about the space when you're going in vivo um liver is kind of really the obvious place to start there's a lot of really great pioneering work that's been done by some of the first generation companies for example in the liver um for various targets and it's somewhere that um you have you know multiple really great delivery options um, it's really a great kind of launching pad for in vivo applications in general. Um, so I think all those things in like the broadest sense make liver like a very attractive place uh, to start, whether that's for your end programs or for partnerships or otherwise. Yeah. And, and Bayer, you had mentioned some of the acquisitions, but both Bayer and Vertex are, are sort of, I think, kind of deep into the space, right? Gene editing, cell, cell and gene therapy. I mean, Bayer acquired Blue Rock Therapeutics for their induced polyprone stem cell platform a few years ago, and Vertex acquired SEMA, and you, uh, you mentioned some other partnerships. Um, but I, I, let's, let's, I, I do want to pick up on the point that you made, you know, the sort of in vivo gene editing. Maybe could, could you compare and sort of contrast in vivo compared to the ex vivo approach, which I think is more typically done these days. How, how, does, how does it differ in terms of maybe production, cost, delivery, the ability to treat a broader range of patients, for example, uh, you know, any number yep. of areas? Yeah, totally. And I think you're right. Most of the space is focused ex vivo right now, but I think where the puck is going is in vivo. And it's exactly for the reason we talked about when we started the call, and it's how do you get to permanent cures, right? Like one-time treatments. If you just think about, you know, patient quality of life and what's really transformative for them, that's the kind of thing that really is the holy grail. So if you want to do that, you have to go uh, in vivo. And in many cases, you have to go beyond the liver as well. So I think in general, uh, when we think about in vivo versus ex vivo, um, again, it's not you know necessarily one ring to rule them all. I think obviously there'll be exciting applications in both areas. But I think a lot of the focus on ex vivo has been because there are just technical challenges to going in vivo, right? Especially we think about delivery. And the way we um, have overcome those delivery challenges at Mammoth is by pioneering this whole space of ultra compact systems that really can leverage both existing and new delivery techniques um, in new ways. Uh, so when you're thinking about, you know, one-time permanent cure, like single dose, this really is all very attractive um, in terms of both the patient's perspective and in terms of, you know, 
how you're having to manufacture things like compared to ex vivo and like, are you doing autologous or allogeneic, right? Or, you know, and how quickly you're able to turn those around. And um, I think in general, there is a lot of really great work going on on both sides, but at Mammoth, definitely, we really see the future as going um, in vivo in particular. And, and Trevor, as a Lord of the Rings fan myself, I, I appreciate your one ring analogy. So um, let, let's, um, let, let's talk about the, the therapeutic applications a little bit in terms of your strategic direction. So I, as you mentioned, right, I think one of the special things about Mammoth is your focus on the underlying technology, right? You can develop therapeutics, you can develop diagnostics, right? There, there's a huge you know, potential greenfield for the development of the underlying core technology. As you think about the therapeutic applications, is that something you envision uh, doing solely through partnerships or do you envision developing your own therapeutics potentially at some point in the future? How do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, so Mammoth is fundamentally a biotech company, so we're definitely fully invested in our own clinical pipeline and internal programs. Um, we're not one of those companies that blast our pipeline on our website today, um, but uh, that's an area where we are yeah, intensely focused and are investing um, a lot in, because uh, in addition to working with partners uh, who can, of course, you know, accelerate and bring in additional expertise, um, yeah, at the end of the day, we really are excited about building our own wholly owned uh, therapies as the foundation of the company. And I think <clears throat> along those lines, uh, we really are focused on a uh, differentiated pipeline as well, right? So really uh, thinking about, we have these novel CRISPR technologies and systems. What are the things where we can be first in class and best in class and that other people just can't tackle? Um, I think. Uh, that's what we're really excited about is uh, enabling enabling the things that others cannot, especially. Yeah, and, and and Trevor, let's let's take a step back for a minute and look at things from the thirty you know thirty thousand foot vantage point, right? The whole area of genetic medicine is is moving, I think, extremely rapidly, and there there seems to be an expanding toolbox of of approaches. Where where do you see CRISPR sort of ultimately fitting in to the the overall landscape? Yeah, so. Obviously, at Mammoth, we see CRISPR very broadly as this kind of almost search engine for biology, where it's really fundamentally the best way to send any sort of uh, editing you want to anywhere in the genome, whether that's double-strand breaks, you know, from using the native scissors, whether that's additional functionality you fuse to it, whether it's like a deaminase or something like base editing or it's epigenetic editing or whatever it is. I think <clears throat> fundamentally that kind of programmatic search engine functionality um, is incredibly compelling for a wide variety of applications. Um, I think especially when you're thinking about permanent cures and one-time in vivo treatments, that's where you know CRISPR can especially sign and, uh, shine and the work that we're, we're doing at Mammoth um, is particularly focused on that. Um, and I think the hope is that using CRISPR we can get to that point where, you know, you don't even have to worry about like redosing and stuff, right? It's really a one and done. And I think it's very difficult um, for other technologies to accomplish that. Again, it's not, you know, gonna be all one thing or all the other, but I think especially um, for those like next generation applications, um, yeah, it, it's really hard to imagine um, doing it without CRISPR. Yeah, no, I mean, no question. There's this massive potential here 
Um, and, and you've outlined a lot of those reasons. So let's, I want to shift gears a little bit and pick up on something you talked about a little earlier in the show, which is sort of how you're merging the biology and the chemistry with things like artificial intelligence and bioinformatics. And so when I think about the, that sort of merger, right, that, that there's, there's become common nomenclature in our industry for the type of company you're building. And, and I love love your viewpoint, right? And it's, it's really called tech bio these days. I mean, number one, do you, do you sort of see yourself as a tech bio company? And if you do, like, what, what does that term even mean to you? Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of people have different definitions for the term, but yeah, we definitely see ourselves as leveraging uh, technologies and learnings and uh, as much as we can across industries, right? And I think that to me is a lot of the spirit of tech bio is how do you build a platform company? right? It's not a single product, right? Like a small molecule, let's say. It's a technology where after you build your first therapy, you've learned things that you can actually help build your second, your third, your fourth therapy. You're not always starting from zero, right? And I think that is going to be a sea change in how we develop uh, drugs and therapies for patients, right? Because right now it's kind of like, you know, you have a small molecule, you get it across the line, and now for the next one, you're kind of back to the beginning, right? It's going to take you just as long likely to develop it for another indication. Whereas things like CRISPR, because you're using the same system, maybe even the same delivery method, and you're changing out just the guide RNA in some cases, depending on what different diseases you're targeting, that is just completely different. We might even have to think differently about you know, the regulatory path. Um, but in terms of um, just the scientific risk, that is so exciting um, to actually have something that's programmatic. And then it becomes a big question of, okay, what are you targeting, right? And that's where um, also a lot of the machine learning and artificial intelligence methods come in is like, what are the genetic bases of more complex disease, right? And as CRISPR starts to knock off monogenic diseases and kind of these things where we already have an understanding of the biology, there's going to be all the more pressure to understand, okay, well, what's the genetic basis of complex disease so that we can then target that um, and help cure those diseases with CRISPR. So... Um, internally at Mammoth, of course, we use a lot of these techniques, whether that's for finding and characterizing CRISPR systems or, you know, designing things like guide RNAs. Um, but I think more broadly, it's really this idea of, is your second, third, and fourth product going to be informed by that first one? And you're going to have a higher likelihood of success and be able to move more quickly. And that's where we're also building on kind of the shoulders of giants of many of these legacy companies um, that are doing these pioneering work with things like Cas9, right? Um, so to me, those are kind of the key elements of things like tech bio. And I, and I really love that way of thinking and, and maybe just to dive in, you know, one, one more step. I think that an often overlooked area that I don't think is talked about enough is company culture. Right. So how, how do you mm -hmm. think about your culture at, at Mammoth? Because it, it really does seem to span different disciplines. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have some software engineers and maybe hardware mm -hmm. engineers and you have yep. biologists and chemists. How do you think about merging all those various disciplines together in, in a culture? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think that is the key. So, I mean, early on in the company's life cycle, we wrote down um, <clears throat> a set of values around, you know, what do we care about? Like, how do we want to work together? And one of the key things that uh, we decided on at that time is that, you know, I think we were probably five, 10 people when we first did that, um, is that the company was going to grow and we didn't want to just have a fossilized culture, right? We want to be true to the things that we care about, but we also um, want the you know, next hundreds of people, thousands of people that will join the company to uh, be additive and 
to not just have the same culture, but a better culture as we grow, right? So like always be improving it, very similar to how we think about, you know, improving products. And um, <clears throat> I think that's a very powerful philosophy and we've continued to update our company values over time. And one of the key lenses used as we think about updating them is to try and use them in decision-making. Um, so, you know, it's all fine and well to have them on the wall or, you know, wherever. Um, but at the end of the day, one of the most powerful ways to leverage them is decision-making. So if you find yourself constantly not using a value for decision-making or using some other metric for decision-making, then you should really think carefully about, um, is that an adjustment that you want to make? So, you know, some classic examples that we've gone through are when we first wrote the values, we had fun as a value. Um, not that there's no fun at Mammoth, there's plenty of fun, but when you're making decisions, you'll often choose to do things that are not fun, right? Uh, and why? Well, because you really care about the outcome. Like you think you could really help patients or you think this is like a really important thing that has to get done. Um, so that makes you rely on more things like uh, the mission of the company, the vision of the company is a key lens that you wanna make decisions through. Um, so I think it's through constant refinement, like necessarily having like some savant uh, vision of exactly what the culture will look like 10 years from now from the beginning. I think that's the key. And the only thing I'll add to that is I mean, at the end of the day, culture is like hiring, right? Um, and really trying to find people that you really respect, that you really want to work with, and that, um, you know, I hate to say it, at the end of the day, you'll have fun working with, right? No matter if it's something really hard or something really easy. Um, and I think that that's the key is uh, the finding the people that uh, you want to build the company with. And Trevor, I, I love that advice. And, and you, you, you sort of sounds like you live this every day, but that, that idea of distilling the culture down to something practical, which is how to use then your decision-making ability. So I, I really, I really love that thought process. Um, okay. Well, Trevor, we could probably talk for another two or three days about all this stuff. Um, I, I do want to be cognizant of your time and wrap up. And I, I just, I want to, I want to end with one final question for you. Um, you know, you, I believe you started the company when you were what, 28. Um, and, and, and so any any advice for young entrepreneurs who are either starting out their entrepreneurial journey or or who are thinking about building the next generation of, of healthcare companies? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, more and more now we're seeing a lot of scientific founders and that's definitely near and dear to my heart. I think oftentimes, whether you're a PhD, a master's, an undergrad or whatever it is, way too many shut the door on themselves um, rather than you know waiting on someone else to shut it for them. Um, I think that there is incredible potential for people to build really generational companies um, starting, you know, from an academic background or a PhD background. And I think that as there's hopefully more success stories like, you know, Mammoth and other companies where generational companies are built with that type of background, I think people seeing that will uh, help them understand that is something they can do. Um, and that is a real path that you can take and you don't have to kind of pass off the technology um, to a big corporation or, you know, uh, to others to really uh, help it reach its full potential. In fact, I think it's the opposite. The way these technologies do reach their full potential and have their maximum impact is by having, um, you know, the scientists involved in the leadership of the company. Um, I think beyond that, I mean, that's a big part of I think uh, increasing the diversity in the space as well as you know having more examples of people that look like the diversity of the United States that have founded successful companies. And I think that's the most powerful thing. So I think in general, uh, there's never you know been a better time for especially like a 
academic entrepreneur to strike out and really, you know, see the impact that they can have uh, building a company that's going to deliver a new technology to the market. Um, so I just encourage people to, you know, make that jump um, and that there is a very supportive community around that. And that was probably one of the most surprising things for me because I came into it without knowing anything about the industry. But there are just a ton of people that really want to help, really want companies to succeed. Um, and you just have to kind of walk through the door. That's the first step. And Trevor, I could not agree more. So I think with that, we, we better wrap up. So Trevor Martin, co-founder and CEO of Mammoth Biosciences, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun. Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was a, a really wonderful and wide-ranging discussion with Trevor. You heard us talk about uh, his vision for the future with Mammoth. And my key takeaway is, I, I guess I really think about Mammoth as a, a core platform technology company that is utilizing CRISPR in its whole broad variety of potential applications, which include diagnostics and therapeutics. And so you heard Trevor and I talk a lot about each of those areas, but it sounds like each of those areas is really an offshoot of the underlying power of their core technology, which is based around CRISPR. And to me, I think this is really exciting. There's tremendous potential here. Mammoth has already accomplished a lot of things in, in their short time, and I, I think they're just getting started. It seems to me that one of the powers that they have is really their ability to identify novel CAS enzymes, which may be better suited for different applications. How, how much of a competitive advantage is that? I mean, you heard Trevor talk about this. I mean, it, it sounds like quite a big competitive advantage, right? It, it, it sounds like, right, when people talk about CRISPR, it's often associated with the, the Cas9 protein. Um, I think what most people don't realize is that there are a whole wide range of permutations of, of CRISPR, and there are other proteins that are not necessarily Cas9 or, or maybe don't look like Cas9. And they all can have more specificity for different targets or for different applications. So there are definitely limitations around Cas9. And that just happened to be the, the first one that came about. And so that, that's why everyone uses it. That's why it's well known. But it is certainly not, uh, you know, if you listen to Trevor, not an all-on-one solution. And so I think what they're doing is developing this toolkit of, of other enzymes. Uh, and so I, I really think it 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 provides a powerful extension of the CRISPR system. Um, and it sounds you know, proprietary to what they're doing. So I, I think it's, it's pretty powerful. If you think of the early days of biotech, the first generation companies were going to do ag and industrial diagnostics and therapeutics, and then found themselves spread too thin and focused on high value applications, which were therapeutics. What do you think of the challenges of capitalizing on a broadly applicable technology like CRISPR? And, and does that multi-pronged approach here make sense? Yeah, it's, it's a really good and difficult question that all companies with this type of broad you know, platform applicability have to face at some point or another, right? So there are, are a lot of other companies that have, as you mentioned, Danny, pursued you know, different, different areas, right? So that's agriculture, or environmental monitoring or bio threats or whatever it may be. 
So I, I think in, in one sense, that those other areas might be a distraction. But I think if you go about doing it correctly, I think there's a lot of value that could be could be accrued there. And so, I mean, the way that I would think about doing that is, is through partnerships. Um, I don't necessarily know if that's how Mammoth is thinking about that because we didn't really get that that much into it. But um, I, I do think think based on Trevor's, Trevor's comments, right, there is such broad applicability of the platform technology and they want to realize the full potential of CRISPR. It sounds like they're going to be pursuing all of these different areas. Um, and, and obviously they are highly focused now on therapeutics and, and the diagnostic sort of, I guess, more what I would call hu- human health element. You, you can see Mammoth building a, a business around licensing and partnering, but Trevor was clear that it's developing its own therapeutic pipeline. He didn't get into a lot of specifics, but seems to have a a very clear vision of what he'll be pursuing. How does that complicate the business model? Well, it's a different business model, right? Obviously, diagnostics is a very different business model than therapeutics. Therapeutic development, it's it's its own animal. It takes its own uh, unique team with their own skill set, has its own regulatory challenges. And so it, it, it is its own unique business uh, that is different than diagnostics. You know, we didn't get into a lot of details because I don't think a lot of those details are, are, are public. And even as Trevor said, they, I don't, they, I, I'm pretty sure they don't even show their pipeline on their website. Um, so I, it sounds like they're pretty secretive about this. But yeah, I mean, if, if you're developing therapeutics, you need to have the team capable of doing that uh, to understand, you know, all the you know, preclinical you know, tests that need to be performed, IND enabling studies, you know, what are the regulatory considerations for moving these, you know, these therapeutics forward. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, it sounds like they probably have a lot of those pieces in place because they're doing it today. But yeah, I, I think it, it is it is different, but c- could also complement uh, some of the diagnostics business uh, business that they have. It's still early days for this technology, but where do you expect it to have its biggest impact? Well, as Trevor said, I, 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 and I tend to agree with him. I think in vivo gene editing is ultimately where this technology is going to have its biggest impact. Uh, and so that is going to be in the realm of developing therapeutics. And I think we are just scratching the surface of what's possible. And we can start with monogenic or monogenic diseases. Um, and we are in many cases. But I think there's applica- applicability beyond that. So there, there's a long way to go to realize the full potential here. Uh, but I, I really do think, as Trevor said, you know, skate to where the puck is going, you know, an old Wayne Gretzky analogy. Uh, I, I think it's moving towards in vivo editing. Uh, and it, it sounds like, you know, Mammoth is, is, is deeply involved in, in pursuing those applications. Well, until next time. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective. All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do 
not reflect the opinion of BioBridge Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results.